Thank you, James. It's lovely and it's an honour to stand in front of you this morning to talk about a subject that really is both important and quite difficult. And I'm not going to pretend I'm not nervous, and part of that is just the gravity of the subject, but part of it is that you've um, gifted us your time this morning, so clearly it's something that you're interested in. And I hope and pray that I give it um, the kind of just and uh, attention that it needs. Um, just a couple of administrative things. If you want to ask questions, <coughs> excuse me, if you want to ask questions today, this is the QR code that you need. And, um, and behind that curtain, stuck on the walls, and on this pillar just here, um, below this speaker, um, is a QR code, and, and it's for all the resources. So those of you that were, gave some very helpful, constructive feedback yesterday to say there's too many QR codes, um, then we worked yesterday afternoon to put it all under one. So take a photograph of it if your phone doesn't work. It's these two here. Um, don't applaud me. Um, it's my technicians. Um, then if, if it doesn't work, just take a photograph of it and then find someone who's 14 and say, <laughs> can, you, can you help me make this work? Um, um, so let's just set the scene um, with a video. justified secretly teaching eight-year-old children that they can be born in the wrong body. The devout Christian mother who's suing her son's school, claiming he was made to take part in an LGBT pride parade. How do you explain the difference between sex and gender? So think of it like this. Sex is what's between the legs, gender is what's between the ears. I will say this categorically. You cannot change your sex. Now, people who, who would vehemently disagree. The senior bishop stated the Church of England did not have an official definition of the word woman. What is a woman? Today, we're going to read, It Feels Good to Be Yourself. The video shows the children, they can change their gender. It says that the doctors guess the children's gender at birth. Our children are captives to unhinged Marxist educators who are pushing inappropriate sexual racial and political material on our children from the youngest possible age. This is Ruthie's friend, Alex. Alex is both a boy and a girl. This is Ruthie. She's a transgender girl. That means when she was born, everyone thought she was a boy until she grew a little older, old enough to tell everyone that she's actually a girl. Some people are coming out as as LGBTQ more and more as, as years go by. Honestly, like, you're losing, you're losing young people and you're just going to end up with a bunch of old fogies that are, are going to die off and so will the church. So I found a website here that has a list of all 71 optional genders that were on Facebook. I'm speaking with Chloe Cole, an 18-year-old so-called detransitioner. At the age of 12, I started experiencing some gender dysphoria. At 15, I got a double mastectomy, but it turned out that it wasn't the best decision for me. I have decided that my true self is a man. But trans women are, are women. Miss Netherlands 2023. Ricky! 
children who say they want to change gender are unlikely to be able to give their informed I, consent to be 74 being a girl gender dysphoria part of me is absolutely care so much well, the ultimate hope for those who are, are transgender is not going to be found in their own body and in what they can and can't do with it, all the procedures that are available today. The ultimate answer to that brokenness lies actually within the broken body of Jesus. I hope that gives you some sense as to the landscape that we're going to try and cover today. Um, it's complex, it's changing almost by the minute. But what I'm, going to, what I'm going to try and do over the next 40 minutes is just walk you through carefully some research, walk you through what's happening with some children. I'm going to tell you some stories about some of the children that I've seen. Um, but also, we're going, to, we're going to try and wrap all of this in a kind of biblical framework and just think about this in the context of what Scripture tells us. Um, let me first start with an apology. Um, I think some of you may be here today um, that have been hurt by the church in how we've handled this in the last 5, 10, 15 years. And if that is you or if that's one of your relatives, then I just want to apologize because I think in many ways, we as a church have kind of failed this community. Um, and you can see... That, and don't worry, these are happy tears um, because I, there's a hope we have and it's that hope that I want to point people to. But the reason why I apologize is I've spoken to many people that haven't had that opportunity of being held by their church. And sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Um, but actually sometimes the best thing we can do when we don't know is just listen. Um, but for some reason, um, our church as a whole has not embraced that. And, and for that reason, that's why I give enormous um, respect and credit to James, because many of our churches won't tackle a subject like this. But thanks to James um, and some of his colleagues, Keswick have taken the bold approach to put this on the agenda and then help you so that you will help some of your churches. Um, my second apology is language in this context is really important. And there, be, and there may be times today where I just use the wrong word by mistake. I'm not intending to offend. I'm not intending to have a go in any way. It's just sometimes your understanding of some language may be different from mine. And if my language in any way offends you or upsets you, please just come and tell me afterwards because I need to know. Um, we need to know what language that we should be using. Um, so <clears throat> I work in this field professionally, and also I'm working with children um, in my church. So for those that weren't here yesterday, I've spent the last 35 years working with children, primarily double-digit children, more latterly working with families. Um, so I've had, and I, and I love it more today than I did 35 years ago. If you give me a room full of teenagers, um, speak to my wife. I'm a pig in mud. Um, um, so as far as my both professional life and my church life is concerned, the key message I want to get over to you today 
because we're talking about children, um, is these children are a group and population that need loving and need supporting and need, hurt, need to be heard. That's the core of what I want to tell and talk about today. So I thought, I thought I'd start with a slide about then why should we care? Why on earth should we care about this population and this group of children? And again, just to set the scope of today, I'm talking um, exclusively about children and adolescents. We're not moving into an adult conversation about gender. That's not really my area of expertise. Um, but, and I'm not going to read this slide out, but this is why I care. This is a group of children that are much, much, much higher than at, ri at risk than even other children within a mental health service. Um, then um, when I've met some children one-to-one, -one, um, they are living in a body that they don't understand. They might be living in a home where people in that home don't understand or maybe even have some bigoted views because they'll have experienced that. Something will have come on television and there's a comment being made and that then starts to then, then it helps them understand what do my parents think about this. Um, in schools, um, children are um, they're bullied at a much higher rate than other children. So what I want you to picture is a 12 or 13 year old child that is lost, that is lonely, that is confused, that is scared, and they haven't got an adult to turn to where that adult will listen to them and journey with them through their difficulties. And I expect most of us, including myself, have never once been in that position ever in their life. And that's why I'm going to argue quite strongly and quite passionately that we need to love these children and we need to journey with these children. We need to understand these children. Um, now, what's even more exciting is we have a message of hope, don't we? We've got a saviour that we can point them to. Now, obviously, that's, that's harder if we're working professionally with children. But in our homes and in our churches, we have a message of hope. We have a message that will make a difference. And by the grace of God and through prayer, then that's really what we should be doing alongside journeying um, with our children. Um, so this just gives you a sense as to why I care and why I believe churches should care. And for those of you who have a privilege of working professionally, why then I hope you look out for children with, these, with some of these difficulties because it's not nice living in, a vac in an emotional vacuum and not having someone, preferably an adult, to then journey with and help them walk through um, that vacuum. And I'm acutely aware that um, this is a controversial subject, controversial in many ways, um, controversial in terms of um, the, the transition of of services, this is public information, transitioning services from one service, the Tavistock, to another service. Um, also, it's controversial because um, in many ways, particularly to do with schools, um, the government still doesn't know exactly what to do. And therefore, Rishi Sunak, our, our current prime minister, 
um, is inviting more and more parents um, to tell him what they think should be happening. So the big questions in schools is, am I going to tell you as a parent if little Johnny now has told me as a teacher that he wants, to be, he wants me to name him Susie, not Johnny? As a teacher, am I obligated to tell you? Yes or no? Because when you look in safeguarding rules, there's nothing unsafe as far as school safeguarding that Johnny transitioning to Susie is anything that's unsafe. So the government is confused there. The government is also confused in terms of what the toilet situation should be at school and how, and how children should change. Again, sports in schools, I could go on. Um, and also it's controversial because the big social media firms have taken an enormous um, battering from the press in terms of often what they're not doing. And what they're not doing, um, the allegations are, is protecting children from content that they shouldn't be seeing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and just lastly in this introduction then, I don't know if you read um, the Telegraph a few days ago. Um, this, was a, this was an advert that Costa Coffee had put out just three or four days ago. And the article in the Telegraph um, then you can read it, then Costa Coffee were being accused of being irresponsible. And I'll just zoom in for you so you can see what the issue is. This is a, a transgender man um, who's had his breasts removed surgically, and you can see the scars in the cartoon. So that was in, that was in Monday's Telegraph, or Tuesday's Telegraph. Um, so, it's a, it's a big subject. It's it's complex, it's political, it's changing every, every minute of every day, um, and we have a role to play. So let me just quickly, extremely quickly, just walk you through the journey that we're going to go through today. I'm going to top and tail it with a biblical framework, and we're going to look at Ephesians. Um, then, then what we're going to do is we're going to look at some, just some definitions and causes as to what's actually happening within this space. We're going to look at some trends because the trends are actually quite scary when you look at the graphs of what's happening um, with transgender. Also, we're going to, we do, I've alluded to this earlier, I'm going to tell you just a few stories to just give you a sense as to what some of these children are experiencing. Um, and then we're going to wrap things up with some top tips. I'm going to make some suggestions and there's some resources that you can access. And then, um, and then, We'll top and tail it with a biblical framework. So we're just going to briefly look at Romans 12 as we close before then James leads us in some questions. Um, so let me begin with Ephesians chapter 4. And also let me begin with, um, really it's a confession. Um, then if you'd have met me 10 or 15 years ago, um, if I'm really honest, I think I would have put truth before love in a conversation that I was having. Um, and I think as God has changed my heart in the last 10 or 15 years, I think what he's done is I think he's now reversed that. Um, that, that the Bible talks that, and, it's, and we've got to consider both really, haven't we? We can't, the Bible talks about speaking truth in love. Um, now, I don't know if you've ever been on an aeroplane 
um, and looked out at the wings. And if you could only have one wing, which wing would you choose? It's a bit of a bizarre question, really, isn't it? But I think the same applies when we think about this context of truth and love. I think they go together, just like the wings on an aeroplane. You can't then just say, well, oh, I'm much more biased against the truth. And, and on this subject, we've got to tell them the truth and we've got to do this. And, um, and I went kayaking um, with a girl from our church and, and, and her comment was, she's not struggling in any way with her gender. And she said to me, come on, do you honestly think there's, there's a trans person in the world, in the Western world, that doesn't understand what the Bible is saying? They do. They, they, they are aware of, and that's more because they perceive Christians to be transphobic, uh, and, and therefore they're not running to the church for their solutions because of perhaps what one or two people have said over the years that then gets onto YouTube and, 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 and at that point I'm going to stop going down that kind of avenue because I want us to think about, I want us to think about the Bible and I want us to think about Paul's letter to the Ephesians and just to ask you a simple question, where do you stand on this? Which, which do, you, do, you have, do you have one of those? Do you, do you feel much more comfortable putting truth on the table, making sure that your point is heard, and then you walk away feeling quite pleased, well, I told them the truth. Um, or actually, do you walk into a conversation thinking, I want them to know, yes, what I believe, but I actually want them to know that I love them and I care for them, and I want to journey with them through however long this journey is going to take, because I want to metaphorically kind of hold their hand. And I think that's my interpretation of, Gen of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, if yours is different, I'd love you to come and talk to me at the end. Um, I'm a work in progress. I've got a lot to learn. And I'd love to learn from kind of your perspective. But that's the premise of what we're going to walk through in the next few minutes. That I, I want these children to be heard and listened and loved by the church. Um, and by yourselves, looking out for those opportunities, those God-given opportunities that we pray for, that then allows us to then speak truth into their lives. So it's not one or the other, it's aeroplanes need um, two wings. Um, so let's have, a look at, um, let's have a look at some of the terms and definitions, and forgive me if, this, forgive me if I'm stating the obvious here. Um, because the world, the world in many ways hasn't changed, but in the context of this, it has changed. So just to make it very, very simple, um, in the language, that in, in the context of today, we can talk about two things. We can talk about um, your sex, and often people put on front of that your assigned sex, and that is largely given to you within two seconds of being born. Um, now, gender, um, in the world that most of us have lived in, um, then there'll be a, a congruence between your biological sex and your gender. But we have to be careful that gender, there's a, there's a lot of social fabric associated with 
our gender. What is a man? What is a woman? What should a boy do? What should a girl do? That's the socialization of gender. Um, but sex is a biological thing. Now I've got millions and millions of cells in my body, um, and every one of those cells has my male genes attached to it. If, if I was buried in the ground today and you dug me up in a hundred years' time, you'd know I was a man biologically. Um, and scientists don't really dispute that. What they dispute is whether the third box on here is whether I, me, have a right to choose then where I fit. And, and it, is it a binary question, male or female, or does it go much beyond that, where it then becomes non-binary, where you, I am not going to um, self-assign myself into one particular category because I might today, but I might not tomorrow. So, so there's lots of phrases, there's lots of words. These are available on the slides if you um, link to the QR code. Um, these phrases are changing, um, and, and, and I never do this intentionally, but I need to make you aware that if we get the wrong, sometimes we use the wrong phrase or an old phrase, or we use it in the wrong context. And that can be offensive. And therefore, I'd always encourage you in having a conversation with someone to just double-check your understanding of a word, their understanding of a word. Because, again, I have a simple view in life that if, if I want to love you and if I want to speak truth into your life, um, then what I need to be aware of is if I'm saying words that are, are offensive to you or upsetting to you. Um, just to help you understand, I had a patient once, a female patient. Um, so she was a biological female transitioning to a male. And every time someone got the pronouns wrong, it made her feel, or him feel even more suicidal. So it's quite serious that what, what they feel is quite serious. Um, so there's a few terms. And so in terms of biology, I'm not here, to, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist. Well, I'm a so, I'm, some people call me a social scientist. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a bio, um, I, I didn't study biology, so I'm not going to give you a biology lesson. Um, but just in terms of biology, we can look at chromosomes. Um, but let's just think about the transition process that children uh, face today. Um, so let's just, in this illustration, let's just pretend for a minute that we have a biological male or what's called a natal male um, and that male wants to now transition or express themselves as a female. Um, and there can be a whole series of um, steps that that individual might go through. They might just do one or two and stop. They might do four and stop. They might go all the way to number eight. Um, and for some of it, it's about telling their friends or, or what we might say they're coming out. Um, and they might then identify themselves. And some might say, I want to change my name. Some might want to change their pronouns. 
Some might do that with a small group of people. Some might choose to do that more publicly and say, well, at school, I would like my um, name changed. I'd like my pronouns changed. Um, We'll see in a moment, there's an enormously strong link between um, children that question their gender and children that then have um, sexual attraction to their biological gender. Is that, or their biological sex, I should say. So let me just explain that. So you could have a biological female who is considering transitioning to become a male, but that biological female, there's a high likelihood that she might be attracted to girls sexually. And there's a, big, there's a very, very strong link, more so with girls than, than boys, about them having same-sex attraction. And therefore, if you are a biological female, you might feel uncomfortable being attracted to a biological girl. And therefore, the logic in my head would be, well, actually, if I then transition to become a boy, it feels more right for me to then be sexually attracted to, um, uh, to um, a female. So do you see the logic? Um, and they may dress, um, they may choose to express themselves in how they dress. Now, the last three are more medical. And there's restrictions come in place in the last few years. So it's a bit more restrictive than it was three or four years ago. Um, and I'm just, and, I'm, and, and let me be clear, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. And psychiatrists are medics. And I'm not a medic. Um, I understand six, seven, and eight, but let me just briefly explain them to you. Um, so at the point of puberty, um, you can get medication um, that then suppresses that puberty process. Um, and the argument is to delay, to help you delay your decision as to whether I should then transfer or start that transitioning process to become a different um, gender. Um, that's quite different um, from cross-sex hormone therapy. Um, hormone, hormone blockers or puberty blockers, um, the research by and large says that it's reversible. There's questions in one or two areas that I'm not going to go into, um, but the papers are quite controversial. Um, but if, unless you take that for a long, long time, and then, but the research is limited. However, if you have cross, um, cross-sex hormone therapy, um, then that can and is reverse, irreversible, especially if you've been on that medication for a year or more. So questions about fertility um, on cross-sex hormone therapy. And in essence, what that is, is giving a biological girl male, um, like, testosterone and giving boys estrogen. So you're actually giving them the hormones, number seven, of the opposite gender. Does that make sense? And then surgically, so gender-affirming surgery, um, we're not going to explain what that is today. I'll let your minds... um, I let your minds wander as to what that then would involve. But we've been doing it 
um, I think the first surgical, uh, I think the first surgery was 1952 in Denmark of an American biological male who surgically transitioned into a woman. Um, And we're just going to move on. I want to talk about, so that's the process. I just want to talk about um, the social constructs that we bump into here because what's really important to understand is if you're British or you consider yourself to be British and you've been brought up in Britain, you will have a concept as to what is a man and what is a woman. If you were to go to the other side of the world, they'll have a different understanding of what they are. They'll express themselves differently. They'll do things differently. Families have different roles with males and females in different parts of the world. And what we can't do, I don't believe, is turn to the Bible and get every answer for every kind of social difficulty that we bump into when we bump into the question of gender. Now, so I have a Scottish father who left and came to England. He never wore a kilt. Um, But if you're Scottish, um, then it's perfectly okay to wear something that flows. Um, We call it a kilt. And I've actually heard some women say that they actually find men very attractive um, in kilts. I can't comment on that. It's just research from within some friends. But maybe when you see Sean Connery in a kilt, your heart skips a beat. I don't know. Come and see me afterwards. And and we can pray about that. Um, But if if someone walks into your church tomorrow, sorry, on Sunday you're probably not going to then be overly concerned if you realize they're visiting from Scotland. But then how about this? Um, He won the Eurovision Song Contest, or she, sorry, she won this Eurovision Song Contest several years ago. It's a biological male. Um, And um, if she were to walk into your church on Sunday, what response and what reaction would they get? Or would... um, and that's the question that, and, and I know I'm teasing you a little bit by giving you something that, uh, that perhaps you've not seen in your church. But the point I'm making is quite simple, that an enormous amount of what we believe to be true and right and normal and healthy is wrapped up in, in our social context. It's got nothing to do necessarily with the Bible, and it's not got anything to do with kind of gender. It's what we've perceived to be normal on how we dress and how we behave. Now, of course, there are things. God has created as man and male and female, and there are differences, and we celebrate those differences. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of our social construct, there are differences. And I think we, in churches and parents and professionals, then need to be careful that we don't then apply our views on what's socially right and normal upon our children um, and use that in some kind of oppressive way because that's when, sadly, um, um, arguments begin. Let's think about what's going on in the world that we live in. There's a graph of the referrals received. So this is not, this is not the prevalence of gender questioning. 
This is just the number of referrals that were given to the NHS. Now, remember, you can't refer yourself to the NHS, to a gender clinic. A professional like myself has to refer you. Um, and you'll see that in the last decade, the referrals into the Tavistock had gone up by 6,500%. I think 10 or 15 years ago, there was one gender clinic in the United States. Today, there's over 300 gender clinics. So why, what's been going on? Um, what, else does the, what else does the research tell us about these children? And these, um, so let's just look. I've got two slides just on studies that have been made. Now, lots of the studies talk about the suicidal risk of children that are gender questioning. And I just want to caution you that that research is always a little bit hard to understand because we don't really have a true and accurate way of measuring, did that child really do something with an intent to die? Or did they do something serious that is life-threatening, but it was saying, help me? And it's very, very hard to get data. But whatever way you look at it, the rates of suicidal attempts and thoughts... Um, are much, much higher in this population compared to other populations that we study that might be in the NHS in a, in a mental health service for another reason. Or even much, much higher than children that are not even in the NHS. So um, same with anxiety, same with depression. So the comorbidity, we call it, that's around children that question their gender, um, is enormous. Um, I'm not, again, I'm not going to read everything. I'm just going to highlight one or two things here that I think are quite important. Um, there's, there's a, the research tells us there's a big link between autism and also eating disorders and gender questioning children. Um, um, I think autism is higher than eating, but, there's a, but they're, the two, they're the two biggest. And you can see from this slide just some of the studies um, that between anywhere between six and a half, seven, or even up to 24% in one study, um, the children were also had diagnosis of autism. Um, we've talked about same-sex attraction. I'm not going to cover that. Um, there's references, those little numbers in red, in brackets, if you want to read the paper, there's a slide with all the references on so you can actually read the paper yourself. But I, want to, I just want to point out one study or several studies, which again are controversial, and that's why I've used the word disputed. Um, but but I, I, these studies, I live in hope um, with these studies. So let me just explain what these studies look at. Is they're studying children that have started a process to transition. And, and the studies may not all differentiate between where they are on that transition. But then what the studies have looked at is, in adulthood, did they continue that journey, yes or no? Um, and the studies range um, in this... So the, what the two papers I've given you here are ranging... I picked one at the low end 
so just over 60%, did not pursue any journey into adulthood. So they then became, an, and some people don't like this phrase, but this is what the, pap the papers use, they outgrew the questioning of their gender. And then as an adult, if they were born a male, questioned their gender and thought, I think I want to become a female. Into adulthood, these papers are saying they were happy being a male. Does that make sense? And, and other papers were as high as 98% in one study. Now, I need to draw your attention that other folk will dispute some of this research. So I'm not trying to, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this because actually in this field, it's not been our finest hour as researchers because there's been one or two things, well, more than one or two, where the research has been a little bit misleading or the study has been running away that's a little bit misleading. But I don't really want to go down um, that road today. Um, I, want to, I want to try and just bring this a little bit to life in just telling you um, a few stories um, about children. Because remember what I said to you at the beginning. I, I want Today, I want you to feel a bit of the pain that these children feel in order that you might do something about this when you get home or you go back to your churches. Um, take, one, take one child, female, biologically female, single-digit child, um, wants to transition to become a boy. So I saw this child with mum in the clinic, and then after a few sessions with this child alone, I thought, hmm, I think I now know what's going on. I invited mum back in alone and said, every man in the rhetoric in her head, the narrative in her head, every man in your life has beaten you up. And therefore, becoming a boy is her way of protecting you. Now mum went mad. She went absolutely mad. But then she came back two weeks later with her daughter. And what was beautiful, because she then accepted that it was true. But what was beautiful, the child looked at her and said, Oh, mummy, mummy, does that mean I can remain being a girl? And then mummy, and then she said, Yes, honey, of course you can. Because mummy's got to do some work. Now that we'd call an environmental, something's gone on in the environment that is causing a child to then think differently. Um, there's a phrase, gender dysphoria. That term is kind of heading its way out of our language. And that's when there's a mismatch between my biological gender and how I feel as a person. I met a, a young man, teenage boy, um, and I couldn't understand, he was at risk, couldn't understand really why was he coming to see me. Um, struggled a bit with social communication, so therefore his ability to just tell me his story was a little tricky. Um, I knew he was risky because he'd come to me via the hospital. Um, and he wrote me a piece of paper 
because um, he couldn't say it. Um, and his issue was that he wanted to transition to being a girl. Um, but that individual, in all my career, um, there must have been 200 cuts up both arms. And that was his way of coping with the mismatch that he was experiencing between his. Um, so if there's any of you, if there's anyone here doesn't think that this mismatch is real, come and see me afterwards and I'll, I'll tell you dozens of stories to say it absolutely is real. Um, yes, it's a feeling. We can't do a blood test to see whether you're questioning your gender or you've got gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. Um, it's a feeling, um, but absolutely um, it's real. I met a Muslim girl on one occasion, a biological girl. She was burning herself with cigarette lighters as her way of coping with the thoughts of not wanting to be a female. And then the journey she would then have to make within her family to tell her parents that actually she wants to become a male. Again, there's no way, there's no way anybody, if you, were, if you were in that room listening to these children, there's no way I'm sure any of us for one nanosecond would think these children um, are not telling um, the truth. Um, so the stories, the stories are real. The stories, I could go on and on. But, but just one other final story. And, and this is, and I, I don't know where this conversation is going to go in the next 5, 10, 20 years. But it, it horrified me. I met two teenage girls um, who both wanted to then biological girls wanted to transition to become boys. Um, and I was just curious. And I, so I asked to meet them together, um, having met them separate, to just say, look, I, I just need to understand. Just tell me about the world that you live in. I'm a middle-aged or towards an older man. Um, I need to understand your world. And it was fascinating. It was the best hour of my life in the last two or three years. But it was the, but it was the saddest hour of my life. Good because I learnt a lot, but hard. And, and here's the message. And if you're, a, if you're a man, if you identify as a man, listen carefully. These girls had such disdain for men. The fathers, the fathers plural, in their life were, were not around, were invisible almost, or if they were around, they were abusive. They'd been in relationships with boys where the boys had abused them. They were in a school where photographs were being taken of girls that were inappropriate. There was things going on in social media that was largely um, triggered by boys. And for the first time in my life, I sat in a room and felt embarrassed to be a male and to be a man because of their perception of men. And then for the first time, I realized their logic in their head to transition to then being male because then they could create a life for themselves where they never need a man. And isn't that sad? We're living in a world where 
the minds of some teenage girls think my life could be fine without a man and therefore if you're if you're a male if you've got teenage girls particularly can you just spend whatever time you can with them they 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 need you just as much as they need a female figure um but sadly in the world i live in i see more distance becoming between men and their daughters and that's true for if you've got adult daughters same applies they still it's still good and healthy for them to be in a position where um where they can have a positive and healthy relationship a loving relationship with a with a male figure i need to check the time we're coming to the end um so just lastly then um i want to just point you to a few resources so you don't have to worry about these letters in the top right hand corner now i've written a little kind of paper with some top tips these are the seven kind of top tips um i use these for the previous workshops but the one thing i'm going to draw to your attention to if you're not doing this already is set up some prayer meetings in your church that are exclusively for youth if you're not doing that today find a way of parents coming together to pray regularly for children i think every church in the country should be doing that so that could be one kind of takeaway um and then i'm just going to finish now with thinking about um romans 12 and this and this I'll make my last slide um then this verse i think this verse has so much hope hope for children and hope for us as parents or professionals um that god can transform our minds and just imagine for a second if there's one or two of us here today that are gender questioning then my my appeal to you is find someone you can journey with who's a christian um an adult figure who can tell you about the transforming work of god because i think if we lay our lives down sacrificially before god wanting to hear from him wanting to become more like his son we can bring all kinds of issues and problems to him and by his spirit he will help us with that transforming process i'm not going to suggest for one minute that all my concerns about gender disappear i don't think we should i don't think we should be saying that because in some cases it may but in other cases it may not but the point i'm making is if we believe in a creator god a sovereign god then let's point our children to him who can do that transforming work by his spirit your job is to listen to them believe them journey with them pray and pray with them and for them and kind of root them on their way as they journey together and then we need to then hand them over to god for his transforming work james all yours 
Do you think that rigid gender stereotypes, sometimes encouraged by the church, has had an impact on this crisis? E.g. boys shouldn't be into ballet, etc. Um, I can answer for myself. So I've, I've worked with children for 35 years. Um, I don't think so, no. I think, I've alluded to this already, I think, I think perceptions of male and men have changed. That's the, thing I, that's the thing I've seen change in my 35 years. Um, I, think, I think the whole concept of individualism um, has had a huge impact just on the Western world, where I now get to choose what I do. There's much more emphasis now on I, and, and if you are 25 years or younger, you've grown up in a world where what I think and believe um, can be true. But I don't think, I think the church perhaps has had some bad press in, an, in some of the extreme end of things. But as a whole, I, my personal view would be, um, no, it's more the change of the role in homes, particularly the roles of men and fathers. David, thank you. Another question here. What age should we discuss issues of gender with our children? I thought I was being proactive with my six-year-old only to discover his teacher had already told the class that you can, quote, discover gender. Mm, wow. Um, I, I don't... And again, my, my two sons are here and the world was different when they were three, four, five years old. I think if I had a, a three or four or five-year-old today... I think my first thing I do is, um, and schools can find this a bit bristly, is I, I'd want to ask school, what are you teaching them? Um, so at least I understood what they were hearing at school, that I could then um, complement that with, with any things where I, my views or, or my wife's views would be different. Now, in some schools, they find that, difficult to then be that transparent it's more that's much more prevalent in america there's the much more conflict going on in schools in america than there is here but if you've got a good relationship with your school and you've got a three or four year old find out what age they're introducing it in the curriculum and then i would be then talking to your children before that so they hear your view um as on these issues thank you Could you, we had it a little bit as well, but it's crystallized again in the question. Mm. Could you speak into the difficult tension between using preferred pronouns, etc., to be kind, but also the damage effect living in cognitive dissonance has for us as individuals and society? Well, um, <laughs> um, I'm going to give you... Over uh, thank you very much. Did you write that? Um, Rumble. No, no, I didn't. Well, let me answer. Let me first. I'm going to be a politician. Let me first answer a question that you didn't ask. Okay, <laughs> and that is, and I'm really being quite serious, that with a group of children, um, if you don't embrace their pronouns, that will cause difficulty for you. Period. 
Okay? And if that's what you want, and you know that's what's going to happen, and you don't want to go down that road because you fear that you are affirming their choices, then that's ultimately your decision. But just check in first, what impact will I have on them if I choose to not go down the road with their pronouns? And then, then that's ultimately your choice. So, so I think we need to understand the impact on some of our children. Um, I had a patient once. She couldn't, she was a biological girl. She could not shower because of her disdain for her physical body and was transitioning to be a male. And every time someone referred to her as she, and I've just done it, um, then um, she just hated herself or he hated himself even more. So, so the answer then, where do I stand? Professionally, um, absolutely, I will use their chosen pronouns. That's my duty as a professional. Outside of my professional responsibility, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carefully weigh this up. If I care deeply about you and I want to journey with you, um, and I know at some point in that journey, I'm going to have the opportunity to tell you what I believe the truth to be. I will use your chosen pronouns because I want to protect the relationship. However, I completely understand that I've got friends that I love and adore um, disagree with me, and that's fine. Um, but there's a, there's a third answer, and that could be um, it's, it's a bit of a middle ground where you say, well, actually, I'm gonna I may struggle because of my views to do this, this, and this. So is it okay that if I always just refer to you as your name and not use gender-specific pronouns? It's hard to do because it's so easy just to slip in his or he or she um, into our sentences. But that's another way that we can think about it. Why don't we just then always refer to you by name, not by a gender pronoun. That's a, another option. Um, but that's where, that's where I you. stand. Thank you so much. I'll sneak a minute of overtime, if I may, for one question. How much does it worry you that things like gender dysphoria and the whole gender issue is no longer classed as a mental illness mm. and is now encouraged? And then how's a Christian therapist, how do you work with this? Um, I can't express with words how much I am concerned. So it's back to that little girl whose, whose men were beating up mum. So just for those who don't understand the question, there's two big um, books that we use to diagnose mental health. One's American and one's from the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization... Um, like what happened in the 1980s, removed homosexuality from being a mental health disorder in the early 80s and has done the same with what used to be called gender dysphoria and they now call that gender incongruence. Not a mental health and therefore you could present with gender questioning um, and there's a journey to get you there without someone like me being able to question and make sure 
is does this all add up and are there other factors at stake that have been missed? Whereas the American book that's due a revision soon probably is likely going to follow suit. And therefore what worries me even more is in the future, if you send a child, one of your children to me um, with questions about their gender, um, and I then start exploring, well, could there be some other factors? Um, if I'm considered to be reversing their thinking, um, I could then get accused of conversion therapy. And that's where, and that's the journey we're going on. So I think we should pray for that. Um, but yeah, massively concerned of where this is going.